0: the Immigration Advocates Network podcast brought to you by Justicia Lab. My name is Brittany Long, and I am the Outreach Coordinator at Justicia Lab. With us today, we have Ingrid Nava, an Associate General Counselor for SEIU Local 32BJ, a labor union of property service workers with a majority immigrant membership. She was also co-founder of Justice at Work, a legal service nonprofit organization serving immigrant worker centers in Massachusetts. We also have Laura Garza, Worker Center Director of Arise Chicago. Arise led on the first case in Chicago with 230 workers in a food production plant applying for deferred action. Currently, Arise Chicago has eight SOI from various labor agencies to support workers as they organize to better their working conditions and wages at their construction, manufacturing, housekeeping, and food production job sites. We also have with us Natalie Patrick Knox, a senior organizer at Jobs with Justice, where she has spent the last decade leading on campaigns to help workers exercise their rights. The fight for immigration protections has been central to her work. She works with the Jobs with Justice network of local coalitions that bring together labor and community groups. And leading the discussion today, we have Jesse Hahn, Senior Labor and Employment Policy Attorney at the National Immigration Law Center. Jessie engages in legislative and administrative advocacy focused on protecting and expanding the rights of low-wage immigrant workers. She also provides legal analysis and strategic advice to support immigrant worker advocates around the country on legal and policy matters affecting immigrants in the workplace. Thank you all for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much, Brittany. So, earlier this year, DHS announced a new streamlined process for requesting deferred action when a person is involved in a labor dispute. And in this podcast, labor lawyers and organizers will provide an orientation for immigration lawyers and advocates on this process, the background, of where it comes from, and why it's so important that immigration advocacy be grounded in the workers who are organizing and the labor dispute. So just a little bit of background on where this comes from. On January 13th, 2023, the Department of Homeland Security released guidance that outlined a new streamlined process for immigrant workers to obtain temporary protections from deportation and work authorization if they're involved in a labor dispute. And specifically, what the guidance clarified is that immigrant workers may be granted prosecutorial discretion primarily in the form of deferred action if they are victims of or witnesses to labor exploitation that is under investigation by a federal or state labor agency, and the labor agency supports their request. So this guidance in conjunction with companion policies that were announced by the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, in November of 2021, the U.S. Department of Labor in July of 2022, and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in March of 2023 constitute a huge policy shift that helps ensure that immigrant workers can be protected from deportation and receive work authorization when they speak up about labor violations. This victory is the result of years of organizing from workers and advocates and demonstrates the powerful wins that workers can achieve when they organize together. It builds on decades of work to strengthen coordination between DHS and the federal labor agencies, such as the Memorandum of Understanding between DHS and DOL that was signed in 2011 and then expanded in 2016, and the 2011 Victims Memo on Prosecutorial Discretion. These changes are meant to address a long-standing problem that when unscrupulous employers intimidate immigrant workers with threats of deportation or arrest, it impacts every worker's ability to do their job safely and with dignity. These new protections make it safer for immigrant workers to speak up about harmful treatment in the workplace and reduce the fear of employer retaliation. And when more workers are able to speak out and fight back against these kinds of employer violations, workers have more power to improve conditions for all, whether that be by forming unions, combating wage theft, defending civil rights, challenging harassment, or reporting unsafe working conditions. Labor law enforcement agencies have long been thwarted in their ability to address employer violations in situations where the employer is weaponizing someone's immigration status to intimidate and silence them. So DHS is not the only agency concerned with immigration status, and with this policy, they have worked with the federal labor enforcement agencies to facilitate their ability to enforce labor and employment laws, and that commitment and purpose are reflected in the process that was established over the last two years. So in the past, an immigrant's problems in the workplace were almost completely divorced from their immigration case, except for the rare situations in which they rose to the level of making someone eligible for a T visa or a U visa based on labor trafficking or other criminal behavior by employers. But now it's important for immigration advocates to understand who might be eligible for this new area of immigration relief, both so that they can properly identify potential labor-based deferred action cases, but also so that they can understand how the deferred action case is one part of a larger set of worker rights organizing and movement goals that are actually meant to build workers' power overall to improve conditions at their work sites. So that's a little bit of background about where this comes from. And I wanted to now invite participants in today's discussion to share a little bit about their organizations what they do and their connections with the new deferred action process so i'll start with ingrid and then we'll go to laura and then
2: natalie so i am ingrid nava and um, as you heard i'm associate general counsel at a large labor union Um, and so what our organization, one of the, you know, main things that our organization does um, in addition to providing services for all of our union members is organize new workers who want to join the union um, and help them win recognition in their workplaces. And uh, that is primarily how the union interacts with this new uh, deferred action process. So, for example, uh, recently, Uh, We have been engaged with a large group of about 100 janitors who um, are cleaning a a multi-use commercial building. A multi-use meaning that this is a building that has retail, it has offices and um, services for the general public. Uh, A large number of janitors who work for a single cleaning contractor that cleans all of that building in all of those different kinds of um, spaces. So, without going too far into the weeds, the the in commercial cleaning, a campaign to win a union, is often a a longer campaign than would than it would be if we were doing uh, a union organizing in a more traditional sector. And that's because, in part, the janitorial uh, industry, the commercial janitorial industry is made up of contractor employers who can be replaced at almost any time with 30 day notice and for other reasons related to the particulars of the industry. And what that means is that the union doesn't jump to an election and that means that the campaigns have a duration, um, oftentimes over a year long, in which workers are doing the normal campaign activities wearing buttons, passing petitions, going to their boss and asking for better working conditions, all of those kinds of things. Um, So in the building that I just described with the 100 janitors, uh, this is a a particular building in which I would say over 90% of the janitors there are first generation immigrant. After engaging in the type of activities that I just described, uh, passing petitions, wearing buttons, having workers sign cards that say they want to be part of the union, uh, the employer did engage in retaliation, all various kinds of retaliation, but also including two firings which the union has charged are unlawful firings in violation of the National Labor Relations Act. And we filed unfair labor practice charges Uh, for all of that retaliation. Because of the fact that we have such a high number of first generation uh, immigrant janitors cleaning this area, because of the fact that the organizing is ongoing, and because of the fact that uh, many, if not most of these workers are potentially subject to providing additional information uh, to the National Labor Relations Act as they investigate um, and prosecute Uh, the unfair labor practices that I just described, we sought from the National Labor Relations Board a statement of interest uh, that could be sent to the USCIS uh, to let the USCIS know that that it was in the labor agency's interest to protect these janitors in the event that they were going to be providing information, testimony, et cetera, otherwise cooperating with the agency for the for the labor investigation and, and prosecution. We were able to get that um, from the agency uh, and have you know engaged in deferred action that way. So I can leave the particulars for further down the road, but but that's the way that we've engaged with this.
3: Perfect. Thank you. Laura. Thank you. And what we do primarily uh, here in Arise Chicago is that we educate workers around their rights, particularly immigrant workers. The majority of the people that come to Arise Chicago, it's 90% are are immigrants. And what a lot of our community members um, don't know is that in this country with papers or without papers, you have the same labor rights as all workers in, in in the United States. And so the first thing we do is making sure that workers know their rights. And then once workers know that and um, they, they're able to articulate what is happening happening in their work sites, they make a decision as to what they want to do. For the most part, people will come to Arise and say, we want a lawyer. We want a lawyer to represent us. And that's not what we do. We don't pro- provide legal services, although there are attorneys that we do go to when needed. But this is about putting workers in motion. This is about workers really exercising um, concerted collective activity and understanding the, the protections around that, and so we started a campaign here at Arise Chicago about two years ago. This is one of many campaigns, but about two years ago, um, a food production plant um, reached out to us. And as you can imagine, during the pandemic, um, there was a lot of people getting sick, particularly in one of these plants. You know, over five people died at that in 2020. But by 2021, people were, you know, again seeing that there was an influx of a shortage of workers, and we always say a shortage of workers. Um, it's uh, it's really about p- people not making good wages and having good benefits. And so, you know, the companies um, couldn't hire enough workers to do the work. And, and this particular company was making millions during the pandemic. And, um, you know, fast forward, workers were like, hey, what the heck's going on? Workers are, you know, being brought in, making more money. And, um, you know, we're, we're having all these issues. So workers decided to, you know, uh, organize around their, their issues primarily a around, you know, making more wages, but then there was all these other issues that came out. There was sexual harassment that was occurring on a day-to-day basis. There was, you know, violations of the sick day ordinance and other, um, the, the fair week ordinance in Chicago. There was issues where, uh, you know, workers not being um, able to go to the bathroom and so on. So they decided that they were gonna, you know, have a letter signed and this is approximately 500 workers. So we already at that point had about 250 workers in motion that were signing letters and they were you know, giving these letters to their employer. The company reacted and made changes um, in some of the plans. And then finally workers had enough on particular plan and said, we're gonna do a work stoppage, they did. All this happens and what does the company do? The, the first thing they do, they begin to intimidate workers and they begin to use the threat of, you know, if you continue to organize immigration might come in, um, you know, this is going to cause the, the company to go bankrupt and so on. And so at the time, this new policy didn't exist. But fast forward, when we found out that this was a possibility, then we did ask for the statement of interest. And now um, over this particular panel, over 230 workers have now gone through the intake process. Um, workers continue to be active. They actually recently won an NLRB complaint. Um, the NLRB found this, this company, um, you know, that they were actually violating the law and so they've been so we've used uh you know the the opportunity and workers have used the opportunity this the support from the labor agencies um to be able to apply for deferred action and this is just one case of many cases that currently we are working with uh with workers but ultimately this is about you know workers improving their work sites and improving their working conditions and their wages and so we really try to focus on that organizing um be very you know concrete with workers about Building uh, worker committees and changing their, you know, the working conditions. Ultimately, you know, we believe that every single worker should have a union. Um, but unfortunately, you know, there there's other competing factors sometimes where unions cannot step in. But in this particular case, this is what workers want. At the end of the day, they want to collect a collective bargaining agreement that's going to protect what they, you know, had what they won so far, and then taking them into the future. Um, but that is just one, one of the cases, um, Jesse, and we have others, but I wanted just to focus on this particular case.
4: Thank you, Jesse. And thank you so much, Ingrid and, and Laura. It's always so good to hear um, about more about your work. Uh, you know, as a senior organizer with Jobs of Justice, I get to work with these great folks on this podcast today um, and learn alongside of them. And then the other part of my job is supporting our local coalitions in the field. <laughs> Uh, A good number of our local groups support uh, different worker centers or labor unions in their fights uh, for, you know, to build worker power around wage theft campaigns or health and safety complaints or, you know, a variety of issues that workers face. Um, And so um, my uh, experience uh, in, in trying to fight for immigration protections for workers Really uh, starts or dates back to 2013 um, when uh, I started supporting jobs of justice in DC. DC jobs of justice uh, was working with the IUPAT or Painters Union uh, in the the DC metro area, Uh, and the painters had encountered a group of workers uh, that were experiencing wage theft. Uh, and um, they would come to the union for help to figure out how to fight uh, their stolen wages, uh, lack of over lack of getting paid overtime, um, getting being made to work weekends and it not being counted on their time sheets or on their pay stubs. Uh And as the painters were organizing with them, this they developed a really strong worker committee really quickly that wanted to organize to find a union they weren't they weren't just happy with getting their wages back just this one time they wanted to make it better going forward and for all of the workers because they had seen a lot of pervasive abuse of this employer but as they got going uh, figuring out the wage theft and then trying to continue to build out the uh effort to for a union contract the employer started threatening the workers uh with immigration enforcement, making. Passive and direct comments um, about uh, immigration enforcement being called. If the workers uh, kept doing what they were doing, their workers were called into meetings um, with management. You know, stuff was said uh, and uh, on the floor of the um, of the shop uh, to scare other workers. Um, and at that point, the painters union reached out. Um, and DC Jobs of Justice reached out to me at National because we had been trying to fight for access to U visas for workers, seeing U visas as an important protection for workers who have experienced, you know, uh, certain types of crimes, that being a way to help them fight their uh, labor disputes. But with this case, and you know, as we had seen in other cases, we knew that U visas were not sufficient to help workers in the timely way that they needed. Because these were folks that wanted a union and wanted to organize through the NLRB process and run a union election. And the U visas were not gonna come in time to protect those workers as they exercise their rights. Um, and so we started uh, looking around to see what other policies were on the books to protect workers' rights. Uh, and you know knew that there were prosecutorial discretion policies that existed, that was supposed to set precedent for labor law enforcement over immigration enforcement, that there were MOUs between uh, Department of Labor uh, and Homeland Security that said workers uh, had the right to organize and that immigration should not be used against them when they're organizing. Sort of working with the agencies to try and figure out what that actually meant in practice. Like, how do we apply for that? How do we turn that on for the workers it says it in this MOU over here, how do we get it for the specific worker committee in uh, in the DMV area as they fight for the election and as they fight uh, wage abuse uh, on the job? Uh, and so that was my first real foray into um, you know trying to win these concrete uh, deferred action type protections for workers. And since then we have been uh, along, uh, along in the fight with other unions and other workers centers, learning from votes uh, and then also sharing that information back with our local coalitions. And a lot of our local coalitions are now using immigration protections as an important tool to win workers' labor disputes and in their fights for unions.
1: Thank you, Natalie, and thank you, Ingrid and Laura. Um, so that's very helpful in terms of understanding kind of the specific situations in the cases that you all are working on. Um, what some of the dynamics are. And so I wanted to ask, you have covered somewhat in your answers the worker organizing goals um, that workers have for each of these different labor disputes, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you see the immigration cases and the requests for deferred action fitting into those larger worker organizing goals. In other words, to you, what is the purpose of these workers getting deferred action? And I'll start with Laura.
3: I think what I've seen and, and really the worker committees at this various various campaigns that we've been working on is that this is the new, these new policies are what we say um, contra miedo, right? Because a lot of workers don't come forward. Um, you know, I've had the prior to deferred production for labor enforcement, It was really a struggle to get workers to come to labor agencies to, to give their testimony. So I think that in itself is a game changer. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. Like, it's bad enough when you have to fight the boss. Imagine that you're putting your livelihood at risk here. And we completely understand where workers are coming from. It's not easy. But that has been a game changer. I never thought in my 25 years in the labor movement that this was even a possibility. I mean, I get the organizing. It has to happen. It doesn't happen overnight sometimes. But I've seen the difference with the way we're running campaigns and the way workers are showing up once they're able to to feel that, com- you know, that comfort of not putting their families at risk and themselves at risk. And so what we've seen from workers and we continue to encourage is that workers organize and they work, they're really organized to work work you know, their current working conditions. This is not necessarily about, I mean, in some cases you'll have people that are no longer there and this is a great benefit. but This is really about improving the work sites. And really at the end of the day, we keep on saying this, and it sounds like a broken record. What workers really need is a union to represent them at the end of the day. But nevertheless, there's these worker committees that are really making a difference every single day. And so that is what we've seen and what workers are committing to do. But it has been a game changer in terms of how workers are showing up. While that fear is still there, it really makes a huge difference in terms of how they're really thinking about their own campaigns and the day-to-day that they, you know, they face um, issues at the work sites.
1: Natalie or Ingrid, would you like to add something?
2: I, I would just piggyback on that. I think all of those uh, comments are right on point, and I would say, you know, winning a union is about self-determination, and you need the remedy. You know, if labor laws are going to work, you need to be able to have the remedy. I mean, there's so many things, so many factors that go into building work committees, like getting people who are representative of the right department, who work in the right area, who can outreach to key people. And you just it, it's not in anybody's interest in any of these workers interest if fear about the immigration status gets in the way of that. And prevents people from being able to take a key role when they otherwise would be a very important, um, you know, person in the organizing effort. And then, in general, you know, we need our our labor laws to work. Uh, and a person not being able to have protection, be, not being able to have work authorization, can get in the way of remedy of legitimate unfair labor practices. And so, to the extent that this helps with that, uh, it's a very powerful tool.
4: Yeah, that's an important question. You know, I think I see the deferred action and immigration protections in general, UT, however, we can get them as being super important for leveling the playing field. Labor law enforcement is largely a complaint driven area of the law. So, so if workers can't come forward and complain if they are too careful, if retaliation is happening uh, in the workforce and an employer can use the threat of immigration enforcement, which threatens not just them, their job, their family, also where they live, if they're able to stay in their home, that can shut down uh, the enforcement of labor law for a whole swath of workers, right? Like a large group of workers. And in some industries, a high percentage labor force in in certain sectors. Um, And so if with the immigration protections, It helps level the playing field so that workers can come forward, participate in labor disputes, provide information to to the labor agencies, and at the end of the day, hopefully make that job site better for all of the workers on that job site themselves and everybody that works alongside of them. Um, We've done a lot of work uh, over the last few years with uh, construction trades unions um, because we know that there is rampant abuse uh, in those sectors particularly on wage theft and health and safety violations. And um, for workers to be able to come forward and report, they need to know that they are, you know, not under the threat of immigration-based retaliation. They need to know that their coworkers aren't either, right? So for it to, for labor law enforcement to work, we really believe that this has the use of deferred action, the use of immigration protections is a piece of that puzzle. Thank you. And so to focus in a little bit on the individual
1: cases that you are all um, referencing today, once you obtained the letters from the labor agencies uh, that had open cases, the statements of interest are sometimes called SOIs, how did you then begin to start working with immigration attorneys or immigration advocates? And, And what do you think um, are some elements of a successful collaboration between immigration advocates and worker advocates? And I'll start this time with Natalie.
4: So, building out a legal team to help with these cases, uh, is tricky and I, I, I'll say that we're still, we're still learning, right? Because sometimes, you know, with these labor disputes, building the relationships with workers is really important. Um, Upfront, and then finding the right lawyers that have understanding of both labor law and immigration law that can be part of a team supporting the workers has actually proven to be, you know, pretty tricky. There's just so much need for immigration protections in labor disputes because uh, immigrant workers have been exploited in the in the workforce. And what we have done is to look for both a labor lawyer and an immigration attorney that are willing to partner with us as organizers and really act as a team together in order to support the workers. The labor agencies uh, all take different times and have different processes and the workers understanding of those processes is really important for building trust. Then we also know on the immigration side that USCIS and all the different forms and processes there, you know, all look different. And workers have heard all sorts of different information about immigration processes from friends and family and you know, on the radio or wherever. And so it also requires building trust with them on the immigration side. And having lawyers that are willing uh, to talk to each other and do that cross-specialty uh, immigration labor, you know, conversation is also really important for making sure that the process moves as quickly as possible to both keep the confidence of the workers because if it gets dragged out too long there you know the retaliation and the fear will creep back in um, but then also very practically to help make sure that the agencies are moving along even though uh, immigration protections prosecutorial discretion and, and uh, deferred action have been uh, policies on the books for a long time. The actual process is really new, and there's a lot of people learning um, as we go here, including in the agencies. Uh, and so uh, I would say that in this process, more than in the U visa or other contexts, um, having immigration attorneys that are willing to talk, check in with us as organizers and talk about like where the timeline is on the labor case is important for us to make sure that we're we are checking in with the agencies and making sure that things are on track um has been really important
2: okay. uh, yeah i i would say i mean to the original question of how how did you start working with immigration attorneys with difficulties my first answer because it is new and there aren't um, a lot of people out there who are willing to just jump on um and like i said at the you know earlier there's this was a large workforce so the potential and actually i'm not sure that all of the workers to date have who who might want to avail themselves of this have come forward yet i mean we're still um you know that's still ongoing and underway so it was difficult to identify an immigration attorney but once an integra- immigration attorney was identified and willing to do this the process i think is similar I think it, um, one of the things that Natalie said is very important, and that's the need to the willingness to talk as the process unfolds to me as the labor lawyer. Um, and that to me is more important than necessarily knowing anything about labor law. I can carry the labor law, um, but uh, the ability to just basically understand that there is another labor goal and another uh labor proceeding legal proceeding that is unfolding, you know that and, and just willingness to be able to be able to check in with that and have that in mind as a, uh, you know, desired end as well that that to me is the important um, piece. So specifically, I'm wondering if you could share um,
1: examples of the kinds of information that would be helpful to the worker organizing and advocacy that um, immigration advocates could share with um, labor lawyers and organizers. And to the extent that you have been able to come up with systems to coordinate with immigration attorneys when they are are bound by attorney-client privilege, um, if you can speak to that at all, I think it would be helpful, and I'll start with Ingrid.
2: I think that the the timing is one of the things that, in particular, is very important to be able to share, to know what and 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 you know, and to the extent that they can share uh, who has who has applied or not applied, that can be helpful. And but then also like when when things were in, if there's an issue with getting documents, it's helpful because sometimes uh, the labor organizers or labor lawyers can help with that who are in touch with the workers on a daily basis. And it helps to understand timing also for purposes of how that might impact the labor case. So in a labor case, for, for example, in an NLRB proceeding, there's an investigation you know depending on the nature of the charges the region that one is practicing in et cetera, that can be a relatively short process or it could be a relatively long process but you know it could be that within a couple of months there's a complaint issued and then that gets scheduled for trial relatively quickly the other thing that can happen in some proceedings some nlrb proceedings is that uh, a party the union could seek injunctive relief to try to get workers back to work pending the final outcome of the ALJ trial and you know so it would be important to understand the timing of any deferred action applications that might have an impact on that you know seeking of injunctive relief and then and and that and it can be important in some circumstances to to try to move that from the union point of view that that injunctive relief because the trial has its own you know timing but that also has an appeal process so even though you might get for example an ALJ decision in a relatively short time the employer can still appeal and drag their feet and so that's you know why injunctive relief is sometimes sought, and all of those things obviously affect the campaign. Because if a worker, a group of workers, is out of work uh, and they stay out of work for a year, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they have good unfair labor practice charges, that can damage a campaign and the willingness of other workers to come forward. So trying to get workers back to work, trying to move that process faster. All of those things are calculations that the uh, the attorneys on the labor side are making with the labor organizers. And so understanding the timing of what's happening on the immigration side is also very helpful.
1: Yeah. And just to clarify for anyone who's not familiar with how the labor law works in this context, the injunctive relief that Ingrid is referring to is that courts can order employers to rehire people who were terminated in violation of the law. And so having work authorization already on hand through the deferred action process can make those court orders effective in a way that they will not be if the deferred action and the work authorization has not yet been granted. So just to make that clear. Laura or Natalie, do either of you want to chime in on this question of the types of information that are helpful or how you've coordinated with immigration attorneys around uh, attorney-client privilege issues?
3: Yeah, and I'll talk about the most recent cases because we got very lucky with our first case um, where we had um, an organization that supported the workers and we had a really good relationship with them already. But as we began to get more letters um, of support for the workers, so SOIs, we needed to really start looking at private attorneys. And one of the first thing was the cost, because one of the what we said to workers is, hey, beware, we don't want you to go, you know, to notarios or immigration attorneys that are going to charge you an arm and a leg, and and so it was um, not you know it was difficult at the beginning um, to find those attorneys. But when we did, we sort of established from the very beginning the the working relationship that we were going to have with those immigration attorneys. In our case, we don't have attorneys at Arise Chicago who are doing the labor disputes. That's being done by our worker center staff by our organizers, and so. That was, you know, the line of communication was crucial to establish in the very beginning, and and what I did find is that a lot of attorneys, of course, they, they're very, um, you know, they know immigration law but don't know labor law, and so we we had to sort of bridge that, um, and so one of the things that we did uh, make it known to the private attorneys who are now working with us on other cases is that they needed to make sure that they were communicating when the, you know, when the uh, applications were submitted. Of course, we were already doing a lot of the, we, a lot of the legwork before in terms of the documents. But in case something came up, and also even to the point of when workers actually receive the EADs, they're not going to the immigration attorney to pick that up. They're coming to our organization to pick up their EADs because we have a relationship with the workers, and we're currently, you know, organize, we're in organizing campaigns with some of these work sites, and so that's really important. And 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 you need to sort of lay that out with the attorney so that. No one at the end is, you know, there's no misunderstandings. So that's really, you know, really crucial. And again, I think Ingrid already covered this. There's ongoing um, labor disputes, and we need to make sure that we're collaborating around that as well. Um, and a lot of it for workers, I just, again, you know, appreciate these new policies because workers don't want to come forward unless they have some type of protection. So knowing where things are standing as their cases move along, it's really important to be able to continue to do the work around the, the labor issues.
4: Yeah, and I can add. I think, you know, what others have already covered, but just concretely, just getting updates on the process from the attorneys is really important because uh, because the relationship with the workers is so important because a lot of what we are trying to combat is fear um, and retaliation that get in the way of workers being able to participate or exercise their rights. Just getting regular updates on the process so that as we're talking to workers and lawyers are talking to workers that we're all on the same page about what is happening. Um, And then as things happen in the course of the case, like if an RFE, a request for evidence comes along, letting us know that happened, we don't need to know as as an advocate, as an organizer supporting a worker, I don't need to know what the content of the RFE was. I I don't need to enter into that confidentiality of like the details. But just knowing that that has happened and that worker might be a little freaked out, right? That they like, all of a sudden, things are not going like they had hoped. Um, can really help you know, me or others show up well for that worker. In Arizona, um, something that we didn't anticipate, and now I will always let any immigration attorney know that we work with, um, is we had a big group of workers that were applying for deferred action, um, and it was... Uh, they were applying at different times, like you know, a couple of weeks apart, as the applications were getting put together, and they were doing their interviews with immigration attorneys. And as things were rolling out, some workers started getting biometrics appointments, and others didn't. And the workers were talking to each other and trying to figure out what was happening and whether this biometric appointment was something that other ones had done. And because they were in different points of the process, it was. You know, we knew knowing a little bit more about the legal process that that was fine, but the workers started freaking each other out and the biometrics appointments were in a government building where they were gonna have to walk in and talk to immigration officials. Uh, And so some workers were scared to go in and do their biometrics appointments. And just realizing that that's where some of the workers were in the process um, and knowing that that was intimidating, jobs to justice um, advocates were, when volunteers on the ground were able to offer to go to biometrics appointments with workers uh, just to combat that fear of, of going through the process. You know, And I think that that just pops up in, in all sorts of unanticipated ways. Uh, and so just having everybody on the same page about where the workers are in the process you know, helps us be able to respond.
2: Yeah, can I just add one little thing about context also? I mean, I think the other piece about context is that in the situation you know for deferred action in these kinds of labor enforcement cases the employees oftentimes might be in general in a kind of trauma or at least a, you know adversarial context that's different from other kinds of situations in which they might be seeking immigration help and and that's i think important for the immigration lawyer to keep in mind and one of the ways that that might show up concretely is you know, this certainly won't be true of everybody, but some of the people I think who will try to avail themselves of, you know, this deferred action process may have recently been pushed out of their job through retaliation and are not, you know, want to, as a result, seek this, but are not otherwise stable in ways that other immigration immigrant clients might be. And for example, um, even at a low cost or no cost, immigration service immigrant you know that's provided by the practitioner there's still the cost for the ead for the employment authorization document which is i I believe it's 425 dollars well for an immigrant worker low-wage immigrant worker who just lost their job and doesn't know when where the next one's going to come from and has been traumatized by the way in which that job was lost that can be a lot to come up with And so, you know, it's things like that, just appreciating the context um, that I think, you know, will help in this process going forward. Yeah, that's so helpful.
1: And so I wonder um, along these same lines, but in terms of information flowing, are there types of information that you as uh, worker rights or labor advocates could share with the immigration practitioners that could help them in how they're doing their cases and their role in the process. Could you think of some examples um, for people who are just starting to get involved in this process, what that might look like? And maybe we'll, I'll ask uh, Laura to start.
3: I can't think of anything specifically because what I found just two weeks ago in doing a legal clinic with new attorneys is, actually just explaining this process of what this was um and again it's the, the the collaboration that's you know very important but one of the things that actually came up was to run the documents because a lot of people you know needed to get either matriculas or passports or birth certificates and um you know this is something that uh, with some of the workers were struggling with and and getting appointments with the consulado mexicano or other consulates and so that was actually one of the things that um that was helpful in terms of being able to provide that information to immigration attorneys that we could help with that. Uh, otherwise, because there's a time sensitive to these cases, you know, there's people that could be wa- waiting for, for a long time to get appointments. Um, so that that's something that that we focused on. But it's, it's really, you know, just again, I, I can't stress the, the line of communication that needs to be open. Um, and, you know, while we're not sharing private information, we're definitely updating each other on, you know, again, on their end with the submission of the cases, the documents, the EADs that come in, the biometrics and so on. And then we're just sort of updating them as well in terms of where the labor cases are at and where they stand. Um, and again, n- nothing that's confidential will come from their end to us. If workers happen to share something with us, fine. But we're, we make it very clear that they, they must talk to the attorneys regarding their, their legal cases. So that, you know, that's basically in a nutshell how we've been collaborating with this with immigration attorneys.
2: Can I just add something, Jesse? This is um, not so much a like a, a tip or trick or practitioner, you know, info. But I just think it's important for immigration lawyers to keep in mind. It's my belief that a very large majority of immigrants in the United States, are going to at one time or another be covered potentially by a deferred action type of situation because there are just so many immigrant workers in the united states who are subject to abuse because of their immigration status and um, i mean i think that to me is the thing to keep in mind because the potential for really making a change not only in individuals immigration status but in the ability of immigrant workers to right the wrongs that are happening in their workplaces and make American workplaces better for everybody is really what's at issue here with this new initiative or streamlined process. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of, it's not like a, a practical tip or trick, but it's, it's uh, you know, I'd like to think that we all want that, and so, hopefully, it's a motivation to do more of these cases.
4: Yeah, that's right. And I also think it's important to keep in mind that this deferred action is based on labor law enforcement, and so it looks different in the ability of labor agencies to be able to intervene and push for expedited processes at USCIS. Um, and so, uh, there is an important, uh, you know, line of communication that. As advocates, we can provide, um, where on the timing of the process of the of the labor agencies, um, you know, with the uh, with a case I've worked on, um, we were working with the National Labor Relations Board, and the process had been drawn out uh, on on the retaliatory charges um, for organizing at the NLRB. The employer had appealed a million times, and things had taken forever. Like six, seven years, right? And so, you know, we had been working on trying to get immigration protections for these workers. We had applied for U-Visas, they were in the U-Visa line. The BFD process for U-Visas hadn't yet kicked in, so then we were trying to get the deferred action. Um, and so all of this is in this soup, right? Of the different processes that the workers are in. But all of a sudden, the NLRB is really close to a settlement with the employer. Right. And part of that settlement is also ordering the workers back to work um, along with their back wages. So, getting them the money for the time that they uh, should have been paid after they were illegally fired. Um, And that sort of happened really quickly. And we had to get the NLRB to call USCIS and make sure that things were being expedited in a way that would meet the needs of the labor agency. At the end of the day, the Uh, you know, DHS and the labor agencies have these MOUs because it's supposed to help the agencies enforce labor law and um, the timing and the communication on the timing uh, is absolutely essential. So so yeah, so all of that to say that I think, um, you know, with the ability for labor agencies to play a role in expediting immigration um, processes, like we can help immigration attorneys understand where things are at, at in the process. Um, You know, each of us on this call have have gone through, you know, all sorts of different cases and have an understanding of how things usually go. And then because of those cases, we also have relationships with the labor agencies themselves and know who to check in with, who might be the point person at the agency to make sure that things are happening in the way that they should.
2: Yeah, and just to make a fine point of that, I don't I'm not sure if we were clear earlier in this particular kind of a case, if a party does want to seek expedited processing, it is the labor agency that generally seeks that. And so it is important for somebody who has the connections with the labor agency to be able to reach out and ask for that when and if it's necessary.
1: Yeah, this is Jesse, and I will just add, I mean, I think that for immigration practitioners, it's helpful to understand that In many ways, DHS almost sees these cases as labor agency cases more than individual petitions, right? They are doing this in service of the labor agency's ability to enforce the laws that they have been mandated to enforce. And so they are really starting from this place of we have received a letter. This labor agency is telling us this is a priority for them. And that is why we are moving on this in the way that we are, right? They have been clear that this is a law enforcement initiative for them. It is not humanitarian. It's not really about the individual's interests. It's about the interests of the labor agency in holding employers accountable and in enforcing the floor of the labor standards um, that exist. And so I think that's helpful for the immigration attorneys um, to understand because it is quite unique in that way relative to other types of cases like daca or tps um, you know that maybe are a similar population of people but manifest in a very different way uh, at dhs
3: really i think it's crucial you should ask these immigration attorneys when they they have availability to join you in your organizing campaigns to come and meet the workers, to be part of the conversations on the strategy around you know what's happening in their labor dispute, have them get a little bit more connected with those workers so they could really truly understand where they're coming from. Um, I think that's been helpful for us. We've been doing that with some of our meetings when they can and they're available to come even their paralegals because taking that information and seeing what's happening you know at these work sites meetings it could be beneficial to both parties. And I would just invite immigration attorneys to do that when they're available to to, uh, work with the organizers um, and in some cases with the labor attorneys as well.
1: I just wanted to highlight that there, there can, in these cases, be a tension between the duty that immigration attorneys have to their individual clients to provide zealous advocacy and the collective goals of a labor organizing campaign. Like For example, some workers will inherently have stronger immigration cases than others. But all of those stronger factors may not actually be necessary or required to win a positive outcome uh, at DHS. And so if an immigration advocate kind of loads up a deferred action request with a lot of what are essentially unnecessary positive equities, that may inadvertently end up raising the standard for other workers who do not have all those same positive equities and make it more difficult for those people to obtain a positive uh, exercise of prosecutorial discretion and so that can create tension with the organizing efforts which are really trying to foster solidarity among all similarly situated workers and so i just wanted to flag that um, some immigration attorneys are really trying to coordinate with each other and with labor organizers to keep the requests as simple and streamlined and as consistent as possible, um, only providing the minimum information needed to, to obtain a positive grant of deferred action because in doing that, they are avoiding raising the bar for others. And, and at the same time, of course, we all know that in some individual circumstances, some workers will be obligated to put forth stronger positive equities than others, and that's understood. So we are almost out of time, but I just wanted to go around and see if there are any closing thoughts that people wanted to share and to thank you so much for participating in this. Natalie, would you like to start?
4: thank you jesse um yeah this has been great i think we have learned so much already about this process since the guidelines have come out and there's you know still more uh, a lot of best practices that we're still trying to figure out uh which uh, will hopefully um continue to you know sharpen uh, as we go forward and so i think it's important for us all to stay connected there you know jobs of justice is part of a couple of different coalition spaces um, and some regular calls. Uh, we have our own toolkit for our uh, local coalitions to share with local unions and worker centers. So I think there is a lot of good work doing uh, going on to keep people connected and sharing those best practices. So uh, wherever folks are starting cases and working on these types of cases, please reach out to me or you know, anybody else um, to get connected in those spaces because we do, as you know, as Jesse said, have, a, have an interest in making sure that the application packets have everything they need in them, but nothing more and make sure that it's streamlined and that the process happens as uh, quickly and efficiently as possible for workers. So yeah, so really look forward to staying connected with folks and thanks for
2: the opportunity on this podcast to, to do some of that and i'm I just also would like to thank you for you know letting me be here and weigh in. Uh, I'm really excited about the potential for this new streamlined process and what it means for immigrant workers um, nationally. I've spent you know all of my career as a labor and employment lawyer with a focus on immigrant workers and have long thought that uh, it's really a disservice both to immigrant workers as well as to all American workers to not have enough uh, protections for immigrant immigrants in the workplace um, and their ability to uh exercise and protect their rights in the workplace i see that as damaging to everybody all all workers and i'm really excited about the potential here and you know look forward to working more with uh the immigration bar and um hope for some fruitful work ahead
1: well thank you so much to ingrid to natalie and to laura for joining today and thanks as well to immigration
0: advocates network Thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate you joining in on this conversation. Thank you for all the important work that you're doing in the community. Thank you for listening today. For more information or more immigrant advocate resources, you can visit us at www.immigrationadvocates.org.